So as you're turning to uh, John chapter 6, and uh, if you don't have Bibles, by the way, we do have some stacked back uh, on halfway down the aisles here. And I think you would be helped if you follow along. We're going to be in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. And I'll be setting the, the stage a little bit for you. The, uh, the, we know that the gospel of John has a purpose because John revealed it in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then we can note the way that he begins his gospel account. In the beginning, he leaves no, uh, he leaves no doubt as to who the identity of Jesus is and his nature. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so, though John begins his gospel account in eternity past, we find that he kind of fast-forwards up to... To cover briefly his forerunner, John the Baptizer, and then he springs right into Jesus' early ministry that was characterized by uh, authoritative teaching and miraculous signs. Now, signs, again, guys, are things that point to something. They're not done just to impress, they're not done just to, to meet a temporary need. Signs point to something, and that is Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's accomplished. Um, When we get to chapter 6, we see that it is time for the Passover. So it's one year before Jesus will lay down his life as the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. This is the previous Passover. And Jesus chooses this time to do a great miracle. Note in this case, it wasn't one that people came and asked him for. It wasn't to meet some overwhelming need. It didn't say that the people were starving, just that that they would be hungry. So Jesus was choosing this time to do this miracle to point to something and to set the stage for the important teaching that would follow. Well, after Jesus did feed the 5,000 men plus their families, he left, he, went, he walked across the Sea of Galilee in this case, and the crowd started looking for him and following after him, and they find him, and that brings us to our text, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So rather than just answering their question, which they were just seeking to be wowed again, he revealed their hearts. He revealed that that they were seeking him not because of the signs he had done and what they represented and what they pointed to. They were seeking him because he had fed them. And they were, there was food in it. And th- they were more interested in what was on the master's table than the master himself. And then Jesus answered in verse 27, Do not labor for the, for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And as I'd mentioned, this, there's some difficult things in this text. And one of the more blatant ones is this cannibalistic-sounding language that comes up later. But if we will grasp onto what Jesus introduces in this verse, it will save us a lot of confusion later. Notice this critical distinction. There are two foods. There's the earthly food, and then there is the food 
that endures to eternal life. These are two completely different things. One is food for the body. It perishes. It's temporary. The other is food for the soul that endures to eternal life. And Jesus continues talking about the food that endures to eternal life while the carnal, unbelieving ears around him can think of nothing but the food that, uh, that perishes. In verse uh, 28, we see that they knew that Jesus was talking about himself as the one who had God's seal because they asked him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This time Jesus answers their question, but in a way that reveals his plan of salvation is not through works. We don't, we don't make our... Uh, uh, we... Um, excuse me. It, it's by grace, through faith, rather than works. So the question was works-oriented, and yet Jesus revealed that, the, uh, that his plan was that we would be justified by faith here. Verse 30. So he said to him, What sign do you do? Okay, so the crowd is now asking him to prove it. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So keep in mind that many in this crowd had just experienced, just seen Jesus do a great miracle, providing food for multitudes so, so that the people ate all that they wanted. Well, apparently they had had time to get hungry again. And they were seeking for Jesus to impress them again, to feed them again. So they're asking basically, what are you going to do to impress us this time, Jesus? You fed thousands for a day, but Moses, well, he fed an entire nation for 40 years. Well, Jesus responded in verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses that gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So Jesus rather humbly here reminds them that Moses did not provide the earthly food. Then he immediately returns to talking about this, this food for the soul. And he also reveals that this food for the soul is he himself. But just for a moment, I'd like to look at the comparison with Moses since they brought it up. Um, Moses prayed and God provided food from heaven to feed a nation for 40 years. Jesus gave thanks and by his own authority and power fed the multitude. But then he's beginning to reveal that this isn't even the right comparison. That he is indeed, he is the food from heaven. And that he would feed an even greater multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation for an eternity. Moses prayed and God opened the sea to let the children of Israel pass through. Jesus, by his own authority, didn't need to. He just walked across right on top of it. Moses prayed and God brought forth water from the rock. Jesus is the living water. Moses was sent by the God, I am. Jesus is, I am. Um, So after Jesus claimed to be the bread of God and the unbelieving crowd answers with their bellies, he reveals that to partake of the food for the soul is to come to 
or to believe in him. It's in this next verse. Listen very carefully. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So there's no need later to get confused when Jesus ratchets up the allegorical language and begins to talk about partaking of the food for the soul in terms of eating and drinking. It means to come to him or to believe in him. And it's now that Jesus gets to the meat of his message. And as we, as we get to it, as we, as we read the meat of his message here, draw upon the things that you're learning as you're hearing and listening through the Gospels right now. And the things that Clint reminded you of a couple of weeks ago, how Jesus went about demonstrating his authority. His authority over sickness, blindness, crippling disease, leprosy. He could call forth the dead to life. He had authority over death. He had authority over the elements where he could speak to the storm and calm the storm and the waves with a word. That's authority. He even had the authority to forgive sin, which is the prerogative of God alone. Draw upon the things that you learned from the book of Colossians, where Jesus is the preeminent one, through whom, for whom and to whom all things came into being and in whom all things hold together. That's the kind of authority we're talking about here, the preeminence of Christ. And ask yourself as we're reading this, is this the language of a Savior who tries and then fails to save those who he intends to save? Or is this the language of a perfect Savior who has the authority, the ability, and the intent to accomplish the salvation of his people? Listen, this is God speaking. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Amen? It doesn't end there, but unbelief does uh, rear its ugly head for a moment. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about Him. Believe, uh, because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I came down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. And then Jesus responds to their grumbling with arguably the strongest statement in all of Scripture about the sovereignty of God in salvation. And of course, this brings up a second area of difficulty because the sovereignty of God in salvation can rub us the wrong way at times. But let's just look at what the text says. Jesus is speaking with authority. Verse 44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This word can, dunamai, speaks directly to a person's ability or the power to do something. Literally, no one has the ability or power to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And this word draws, helco here, so often it's taught as as a wooing of God. This word literally means to drag. And, uh, of course, in English, it would be awkward to render it that way in a gracious context. But 
to, what you need to understand and draw from this is that salvation is a work of God and of God alone. Now, you could take offense at this. You could mischaracterize it as God dragging someone into the kingdom against their will. But what's actually occurring is God is removing a heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh, granting life to spiritually dead, rebellious sinners, granting them belief, changing their will. That's what's happening. But you can take offense at this. You can take offense at the fact that your salvation rests firmly in the hands of a gracious and perfect Savior. Or you can take great comfort in it. Well, I need to move on, but it is important to understand that this is not inconsistent with all of the whosoever verses. It simply reveals who the whosoever's are and by what power they come. Nor does it abrogate man's responsibility for, for obedience and for sin. The responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God are both clearly taught in Scripture. And though they can be in tension in our finite little minds, we must faithfully cling to, preach, teach, and live as though both are true because they are. I really need to move on now. Um, verse 45. Um, Jesus had, was speaking here with great authority about him being the bread of life. He responded to the unbelieving Jews, proclaiming God's sovereignty and salvation. And he says, It was written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Now recognize what a bold claim this is. Not just that he comes from God, that's big, but similar to what he's going to say later in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here he's claiming to be the destination of every true path. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give um, for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus here begins to reveal the nature of his saving work. What is it about him we're supposed to partake of and trust in? Is it a mere intellectual ascent of him as a prophet and a priest and a king? No, it's, it's, it's an understanding of and grasping what he has accomplished in his body on the cross. That is our redemption. He accomplished our salvation as the spotless, perfect Lamb of God. Enduring, uh, enduring the righteous wrath of God on his body for our sin. In verse 32, then the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can, he, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Still blind to the distinction between the true food and food for the soul. And this brings us to a third difficulty difficult thing in this set of teaching in this, in this text and that is that when faced with unbelief, Jesus doesn't do what we so often want to do. We often want to soften the message. 
We want to give the proverbial spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Um, We're often tempted to want to sinfully change the message just to get people to believe us. But Jesus never condescends to unbelief. He's gracious and patient with ignorance, with childlike naivete, but he never condescends to unbelief. In this case, he's going to begin ratcheting up the, the, uh, the language here. And he knows, first of all, that he has indeed distinguished between the food for the soul and the food for the body. And that the believing people who are hearing him are understanding it. But he also knows that it's going to enrage and harden the unbelieving Jews that are around him. So here goes. Verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I, said, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. As this is difficult language. We know what he's talking about. Because we maintain that distinction that he, was, he kept throughout He's talking about the true food for the soul that we partake of by coming to him and believing. But to the carnal-minded, unbelieving Jews around him, this was crazy talk. Imagine a rabbi telling Jews to drink blood. If you know the dietary laws at all, it's unthinkable. So what was going on here? Well, I believe that the scripture teaches that this is the active judgment of God on their unbelief in the form of hardening. And uh, I'll sh- give you a few reasons why I believe that. In First, first Peter chapter 5, verse 5, and James 4, verse 6, we see that God actively opposes. That is, he sets himself against the proud while giving grace to the humble. And unbelief is the ultimate expression of pride. In Romans 1, we find that God is, God's wrath is being revealed against the suppressors of the truth. And God is, begins giving them over to their own lusts and unbelieving, debased minds. And then finally, there's a precedent here. We find in, in Romans 9 that Paul is describing how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then he reminded us of God's purpose in it. And then he turns around a couple of chapters later in Romans 11 to reveal God's purposes in his hardening or his partial hardening of the Jews, which is what we're witnessing right here in John chapter 6. But what are we to do with this? Uh, Difficult teaching, strange allegorical language, God's sovereignty and salvation that still, uh, that kind of rubs us the wrong way sometimes. Um, But God's purposeful and God's purposeful hardening of people at times. Well, when you're confronted with God's sovereignty, The proper response is awe, gratitude, 
and comfort. Keeping in mind that this sovereign God is the one who is working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And way better than that, he's working all things together to his own glory. And and another thing is never, ever use God's sovereignty as an excuse for disobedience. Well, if God's going to do this, then it doesn't matter what I... That's a lie. We are still responsible before God for our actions, our behaviors, our obedience. Our response to God's sovereignty when we are confronted with it is never to judge God on on human standards. Did y'all get that? This is about the time when people can start fading. It's really important. Never, ever judge God according to human standards of fairness or anything else. No matter how good you think your case is. Um, Job is a great example. He had a pretty good case. And if you read chapter 38, the whole thing, you see how God responds when he's judged by humans. And when you see in, uh, when Paul in, in uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 19 and following, his, the imaginary objector that he uses throughout the letter has asked one too many questions, questioning God. You, you'll see it there again. Never judge God on human standards. We are his ambassadors. So what does that mean for us? What do these things mean for us? Well, I do think it's a sobering reminder of the urgency of the gospel call. Just remember that those who remain in stubborn unbelief, they are not on safe ground. They are ripe for judgment. And I don't believe that it's, it's a call for us to start using bizarre allegorical language with people. Um, but it, it may be indeed a call for us to reevaluate where we're spending our time and effort. Are we condescending too much to unbelief? For instance, do you fancy yourself an apologist? Do you spend more time butting heads and preaching to the minds of scoffers than you do commending a clear presentation of the gospel to the consciences of all men, as we're called to do in 2 Corinthians 4? Well, yes, it's it's easy to see how this difficult, cannibalistic-sounding language, when taken out of context or with an unbelieving heart, can lead to all kinds of problems. Um, For instance, well-meaning Christians can read this and and scratch their heads. Well, he must be talking about the Lord's Supper here. Well, actually, he's not. And there's a very important distinction. He is talking here about the true food. That food for the soul that leads to eternal life that you must partake of or you cannot be saved. People can... Be saved without ever taking the Lord's Supper. Um, He is talking here about the true food. So while Jesus here is not referring physically to eating the elements of the Lord's Supper, he here and in the Lord's Supper that he gives us later, in both places they are indeed pointing to the same thing. And we'll get to the Lord's Supper here shortly. But let's look for a moment at what happens next in this story. In this account, verse uh, 60 to 65, we, we see folks that are called disciples that Jesus exposes as unbelievers. Many of them. They too grumbled at his t- difficult teachings and they turned back. 
Well, here I am addressing a crowd of disciples. What will you do? What will we do with Jesus' difficult teachings? Will we grumble and turn back? Or will we do as Peter did when Jesus went to the twelve and asked, Are you going to go away too? If Peter responded, John 6, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And in the following Passover, Jesus lays down his life as the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. 